Hello and welcome to the Stellar Woman podcast. Stellar Woman is a relativity community that empowers women to harness the power of technology and community to grow both personally and professionally. I'm your host, Blair Cohen, and today on the podcast, I'm joined by Farah Pepper from Marsh McLennan. Now, Stellar Woman listeners, buckle up for this episode as you join Farah and I at the intersection of people, process, and tech. I sit down with the Mary Poppins of eDiscovery, and we discuss what it takes to make change appealing, the new skills that a leader of today needs, and why eDiscovery professionals really need to be wearing superhero suits. Enjoy. Farah, welcome to the pod. We're so happy to have you. Thank you, Blair. Oh my gosh, Blair. I am thrilled to be here. I cannot believe it's finally my turn to be on your podcast. It has been a long time coming from um, DC and and a couple of Nona's garden cocktails to now. Um, Look at how far we've come. Um, But Farah, I feel like we could talk for hours and start this conversation in a million different ways. But first things first, just tell me a little bit about your journey into the legal fields and how you made your way into the tech side of legal. Absolutely. So it's it's a tale as old as time. I started out at a uh, New York law school and ended up at a New York law firm. And because I was good with words and stuff, found my way into litigation as a baby lawyer. Uh, and very quickly came to realize that instead of having my Perry Mason moment, I was going to have conference rooms full of documents. So I got very well acquainted early on with the rigors of discovery, e-discovery, and, you know, unlike others who took one look at it and said, oh no, not for me, I immediately saw the opportunities. It was a big, thorny, complicated problem with unsettled legal issues that needed to be cleaned up. And my nature, I have learned, I am a builder and I am a fixer. So pretty Mm. early on, I got very attracted to both the law and the practice of e-discovery as a specialty area. And indeed, as a pretty junior associate, was able to form the practice group at my firm, the very first e-discovery practice group. Um, and, And it was fascinating. It really was an amazing time. The federal rules were changing. People were getting interested and excited about this area. So that's where I got my start. I would say uh, sort of a willingness and a desire to dive into not just the law, but also the the mechanics and operations of how to solve problems. Put it all together and you've got an e-discovery practice. Now, from there, I spent a long time at my New York law firm. I got recruited to join my first in-house role at GE to be Global Discovery Council and to flip over to the other side and then basically build a program from scratch and get to coach law firms how to meet client expectations for GE. And that was fascinating. Really taught me a lot about how to be a good client, how to be a good in-house attorney, Mm. and uh, loved that experience, but found that I wanted to do more. I found that if you knew e-discovery, you were an excellent problem solver, and I wanted to take everything I had learned and do it bigger. And so then the opportunity came about to come to my current role, Marsh McLennan, and we co-created the role I'm in now, which is Chief Legal Innovation Council. We're sure we do discovery, but we do a whole lot more too. And we take that trifecta of people, process, tech, and we make the legal department better. And it is just nonstop fun. Ah. 
I, I love how you talk with such joy about what you do and such like curiosity and engagement for something that, you know, maybe there wasn't a path charted, which I think is, is so interesting, but you said that you're, you said that you're a builder, but I would also say that a huge part of, of you is a connector. Like you connect people, um, and people warm up to immediately. And so I can understand why they would have you take over and start up that e-discovery um, section. Something I've heard you say a couple of times that I absolutely love. I think it should get framed. Um, e-discoveries, e-discovery professionals can take over the world if only we let them. So can you tell me a little bit more about what that means to you and kind of how you, you came up with that trademark saying? Oh, I- I would love to. And you're right. We should put that on a mug or needle point it onto a pillow or something because it's, <laughs> it's, it's the truth. So, so here's my hot take on that. I think e-discovery professionals can take over the world. And in fact, many of them have gone out and started to do so. If you are an e-discovery professional, you have a very wonderful and unique set of skills and talents. You're basically like the Swiss Army Knives of the legal team. You can do it all. But the danger is that you can also be typecast. And, you know, when you talk about e-discovery to people who are not perhaps as jazzed up about it as I am, you can almost watch the lights go out in their eyes when they hear e-discovery. They get focused on the terminology and not the underlying problem-solving skills. And so what I mean by that, that e-discovery professionals can take over the world if we let them is that if you take someone who has managed to battle through e-discovery and solve all the thorny intractable problems around data and new sources, and it's ultimately a people problem as well, change management, psychology is in the mix, put it all together, and you've got someone who can basically solve any problem you put in front of them. They're at that epicenter of problem solving and that sweet spot of people, process, and tech. And so if we can rebrand it and open up people's hearts and minds to what e-discovery professionals have to offer and not just the naming conventions, you find basically this this Avengers-style team of heroes who can solve problems in an in-house legal team. Uh, The imagery of um, the Avengers in like, e-discovery themed superhero outfits is is something I'll be thinking about for a while. <laughs> well, it, well, now I will as well. I feel like we're going to have to design those outfits and debut them at a future Rolf Fest. Sarah, I'm, you know, I'll take you up on that. So be, <laughs> be careful. I know you will. You, <laughs> um, and, and speaking of things that go on, that need to go on a mug or a needlepoint, um, people process tech. I absolutely love that. And like the, the intersection of all of them, something that you said that really stuck with me is like these transferable skills and something that we've talked about are these skills that typically get coined as being feminine, um, you know, kind of being the secret to success for a leader. Do you find that to be, to be true? So here, here's my take on that. I think that there are there's gendered thinking out there. I think when people picture in their mind a leader, especially in a corporate environment, the first thing that pops in their mind tends to be often the classic white male, um, perhaps mm-hmm. of a certain age. 
And like it or not, it's almost this like game of association. That's what people expect because that's what people have seen. Mm -hmm. And there's a set of expectations around behavior and whether someone is hard-nosed or soft, whether someone is tough or empathetic. And I just, I just reject all of it. It, you know, and I love you for it. (laughs) The only reason we expect to see a certain thing and to experience a certain set of traits is because that's what we've been conditioned to expect to see there. But if we start from scratch and think about what makes a good team and the concept that I love of servant leadership, you know, what a leader should be and what a leader brings to the team. You know, you see these memes all over the place that a leader isn't someone who has the title. A leader is someone who people willingly follow because ultimately at their heart, a leader cares about their people. A leader supports their team. And when we talk about the classic, you know, basically typical image of a leader, you know, it's the old style 1950s barking CEO. And that's not where we should be. That's not where we are. You know, there's just more variation in terms of what leadership means these days. Perfect example at my own organization, RGC is an awesome woman. And, you know, it shouldn't even be notable. That should just be a thing that happens. And everybody brings a set of distinct traits into every leadership role. So it's not just gender in the mix. You know, if we're talking about real inclusion and belonging in the workplace, it needs to be a place where people bring their whole selves. You know, so it's every experience. It's whether they're type A or type B. It's whether they process things visually or they like to talk it through. I mean, I love the idea of us taking a fresh look at what it means to be a good worker, what it means to be a good leader and starting over so that we don't have those predispositions to a certain way of doing things. Definitely. And it's it's interesting because I remember early on and when we met, I sometimes I find the, the need because I, I have this idea of like what it means to be successful in a corporate environment. Neither of my parents, you know, are corporate um, people. They went to, uh, they didn't go to college and they both have blue collar careers. And so I didn't see that modeled. So I, I did refer to like pop culture, right? So I saw people that were really strict and like kind of bossy and like, you know, just kind of a hard ass for lack of a better word. And that is so not me. So I found myself almost like trying to tone down my, my funniness, tone down my goofiness. And you were like, where that's actually a superpower of yours. Um, which was so amazing, but, um, well, I stand by that. You're ready to join the legal Avengers. (laughs) Yes. Um, costumes and production should probably take six to eight weeks. Um, but as the um, Innovation Award winner for Inclusion, Diversity, and Belonging, you are definitely a leader and you're also the Chief Legal Innovation Counsel. And that comes with with probably bringing about a lot of change and changing the way that, that people traditionally think about things. What are some of your tactics for, for creating change in an organization and, and in a field that's typically resistant to change? Well, that's the heart of all of it, right? That that's the essence of it all. We're asking people to take the 
steps, the, the daily habits that have gotten them to the place where they are right now and to revisit them and change them because we think it can take them somewhere bigger, somewhere better. And that's really hard. And at its heart, it's, it's a combination of things. Number one, I'm going to give credit to the fabulous Bob Taylor, who's currently at Deloitte, who, when he was in an in-house role, said something that resonated with me and that I use all the time which is that when you're looking to create change, it has to come from a place of desirability. Meaning if people don't want to go where you're going, it's an uphill battle and you may have already lost. So the key Mm. is to empathize, to create value, to be a storyteller, to take people on a journey. So they are swept up in a shared mission with you where your objective is to make their lives better. If you have all of that as a backdrop, it's exciting. It's interesting. It's something that everyone wants to go do together as opposed to an imposition, a mandate, a requirement. That isn't fun for anyone. And the reality is (laughs) in a corporate environment, you might have that. You might have corporate mandates. But you can, I feel like the Mary Poppins of like legal technology, you can always find the fun in every task that must be done. Do you also have a big, a big bag where you just pull out? Huge, (laughs) huge. You would be shocked what comes out of my bag. I, I love what you said about change because it's true. I think that some, a characteristic of, of some of, uh, as I call them, like the disruptors in our industry um, and I use that term obviously, like super enduringly. I think that we need disruption to to create change. Sometimes when you tell someone to do it, even if that's what they are originally going to do it, now they don't want to because they've been told to, right? Absolutely. And so I I think this is really interesting because I think it kind of ties directly to like leveraging technology. So it's a through line in your career, as you've said, but it's not for a lot of legal professionals. How did you manage to integrate technology into your day-to-day? So I think this was really inevitable for me because Mm -hmm. I got interested in discovery where the whole essence of it was dealing with unmanageably large sets of data. The question was not whether to use technology, it was which technology and how much of it could we get right away. So I got very comfortable very early on viewing technology as an accelerator for my objectives. And then when I started to realize that I got comfortable because there was no other way to do it. And it just made sense. And once you get over any sort of hurdle about learning how to use it and getting comfortable with it, it just becomes second nature. It was an aha moment for me. And later in my career, when I had to be the one explaining to people the value proposition and bringing them along for the journey, I realized an essential truth. It has to be easy. It has to be intuitive. It can't be something that adds time to someone's day. The whole point is to make life easier. So if we stop focusing on technology for technology's sake and instead focus on solving the problem, meaning you're overburdened, my beloved in-house colleague. You need more time in your day. You need to be able to get to outcomes that are better, faster, less expensive, more reasonable. Uh, we have a tool set that can help you to do that. Well, then that's the story. That's the narrative. It's not, look at this shiny new fun tool we got and we want you to try it because it's a shiny new tool. It's a, we have something that's going to bring you joy. 
Um, and, and that's actually one of my core principles. My, my team and I talk all the time. We've coined the pepper principles for innovation value. And there's four of them. We've got, is it saving time? Is it saving money? Is it improving quality? And is it increasing colleague joy? And I weight joy just as much, if not more, than all the others. Meaning if you're saving money, but you're making people miserable, that's not a great solution. It's a balancing act. Mm. Ah, the pepper principles. Um, they're just, it's such a great trademark. And it is so, I think it's so important because joy and ease is so like, even if it's saving you a ton of money, if it's a slog around the way, no one's going to want to do that because we value our, our time and honestly our energy. So I'm so happy I that also, you've done that. Yeah, no, and not, not only that, I would say uh, maybe we're conditioned early in our lives. You know, you hear people say things like you can pick fast and inexpensive, but not quality or, vi you know, you can do the permutations, but you can't have it all. And perhaps unreasonably, I like to look at everything and say, well, why not? You know, aim, aim, for, aim for the moon. And if you miss, you still hit the stars. I'd like to think we can get to a point where we are getting all of those things all in one nice, neat package. And if we're going to compromise on anything, user experience is not the one to go. And I, I, something you said is like, you can't have it all. I think women especially are kind of told that as it relates to their career, their marriage, their family life. Um, and I feel like you've really disproven that as like being, you, you know, it's, it's so amazing to see. Well, that's nice of you to say, but I absolutely feel like a work in progress. And to be very candid on my desk, I have a little inspirational quote that I have framed that I look at sometimes absentmindedly when I'm on calls. And it says the following, I'm looking at it right now. It says, the question isn't who's going to let me, it's who's going to stop me. And it's almost a reminder mm. to me that instead of expecting that you're going to hit that wall and stopping yourself, just keep swimming and wait for someone else to tell you no. And then when they do that, keep going anyway. Sometimes we all need that pep talk to just keep going. Absolutely. And I, and you know, Listeners, if, if you're going to try to stop Farah, I, I wish you a lot of luck because I don't think it's happening anytime soon. Um, in this year alone, she's you know won the Innovation Award for Inclusion, Diversity, and Belonging and been named um, an AI visionary. Um, and that will be out by the time that we publish the recording. So I just want to say, Farah, congratulations. And it has been so amazing to, to see you get all of these accolades for, for these, this work. Blair, you're, you're the best. Thank you for saying that. But honestly, the, the best part of things like that are the other people I get to meet in the course of these kind of conversations. Getting a partner with you on things like the Relativity AI Bootcamp, mm -hmm. it was amazing. And I can't wait for that program to continue this year and for other people to get to experience it. And likewise, with the AI visionaries, I mean, man, look, look at that class. It's just incredible mm -hmm. to connect with other people who are really deeply thinking about these issues and grappling with them. It makes you feel like you found your tribe. Definitely. And, um, and, and you fit right in. But Farah, um, I'm going to be, I'm, you kind of know the drill. I'm asking all of our guests in 2023 the same question. 
what's a piece of advice you would give to your younger self or, you know, as a baby litigator, baby Farah? <laughs> I like that question a lot. And I actually have an answer because I realized fairly early on, but not early enough that when you look back on your career and the choices you made, inevitably you are more frustrated with yourself when you didn't take a leap than when you did. Even if you fell on your face when you tried that thing, you tried. And so, you know, I am motivated by that concept. You know, there's that, there's that quote out there that, you know, 20 years from now, you'll be more disappointed by the things you didn't do than by the ones you did. And that's so true. I think my advice to my younger self would be just, just go do the thing. You know, what's the worst that happens? Oh, well, you heard it here first, folks. Do the thing. Um, Farah, it has been so amazing having you on this podcast. From the moment we met, I was like, I'm going to get her on and I'm going to keep swimming no matter who tells me no. Um, but thank you so much for being on the podcast and thank you so much for for being such a a beacon of positivity and, and bringing a new way of thinking into this industry. Blair, right back at you. You are fearless and it's my pleasure to be on your podcast. Let's do it again. 